You're listening to 105.1 Life FM, Bendigo's Positive Choice, and we're here again, Alita Robinson and Pastor Samuel Chizakedi from A Reasonable Christianity with Q&A. Yes. Samuel, we've been tackling the subject of does God exist? Yes. And we've been wanting to give Christians tools mm-hmm. um, that will help them talk to those who don't believe in God, mm-hmm. their family, friends who don't yep. believe in God, and that yep. they've got an argument that's not just the Bible says, mm-hmm. but an argument that actually explains who God is mm-hmm. um, in a number of ways. Yes. And you just, uh, well, the classical definition of God in Christianity is that he is the greatest conceivable being. Yes. He is the necessary being. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And we had a bit of fun with some of that science stuff when we were talking about the Big, big Bang yes. and, uh, <laughs> you know, that all things have a beginning and that. Uh, you know, at the end of the day, you said, "Well, the Big Bang had to have a Big Banger," yeah. which was quite entertaining. <laughs> which, which, yeah, which that one is actually I didn't coin that one. The person who coined that one uh, is Gregory Cockle, and every every time Greg says it, it's just so funny. Like the Big Bang uh, needs a Big Banger. Yeah, I think it's hilarious. Yeah, so we're, we're going to uh, continue to talk about this particular subject. You've got five reasons why God exists, and yes. we're, we're, we're going through those, and uh, this will be a great way for Christian believers who have always been brought up in the church to really be able to talk authoritatively mm, with um, mm, with mm. their friends and, yeah. their, and the people around them about God. Yeah. And so I want to start by, by reminding our, our listeners that Last Sunday, as we started, I did uh, a number of things. Uh, the first thing is, you know, I clarified the definition because many people have got a misunderstanding. When they hear God, they don't understand exactly what is the classical Christian definition of God. Mm. So people have conjured up all sorts of ideas, and, and especially based on the medieval paintings, you know, Renaissance paintings and so on and so forth. People have conjured all sorts of ideas of some old man with beard you know, in the sky or, you know, all sorts of ideas. And people have compared the Christian God to Zeus or to Spaghetti Monster. or, or yeah, it's So I, I provided the, the classic definition of God. And then I, you know, dispelled these misunderstandings. And so the definition is that God is the greatest conceivable being, mm. the necessary being, who exists by the necessity of his nature, and who will have great making properties. And he has these properties to their maximum greatness. So if God is love, he has the extent, the perfect love, if you will. Uh, if God is just, he's got perfect justice, and so on and so forth. So we, we did that, and then I went to give the three fundamental ways we come to conclusion rationally. Okay? Yeah. I said that you, you, you use re- deductive reasoning. Mm-hmm. You, deductive reasoning is the way we get this uh, Socratic deduction. Yeah. You know, all men are moral. Samuel is a man, therefore Samuel is moral. You cannot escape that conclusion if the two premises, the first two statements were true. Yes. It doesn't matter whether you like the conclusion or not. That's just what's going to happen. I can guarantee you. Nobody wants to die, but the reality is... We're all going to die. Yes. Exactly. Now, so I said that was the first thing. The second thing is we use inductive reasoning, which is our scientific methods. You gather the data, and if your data sample is big enough, you can then you know, lead into a general conclusion based on the size of your sample. Yes. So if I sample, let's say, 20 or 50,000 Australians, 
based on a particular data sample and found that something is true about these 50,000 and they were randomly selected. And then, therefore, I can extrapolate to say all the 25,000, 25 million Australians will be affected by this conclusion. Okay, so I gave an example. That's how we do pollings. That's how we do vaccination studies. That's how we do, you know, every study we do, you can't, you're not going to take the entire population of the world, 7 billion people. No, you pick up a sample. If the sample is random, it's randomly selected, and the standard deviation is quite reasonable. Uh, uh, and therefore, you know, you can infer, you can infer the conclusion. It's called, uh, you know, um, you know, in, inductive reasoning. Mm. And so now we look at abductive reasoning. You've got a set of data here. And then you're finding the best explanation for the data you have. And so the best explanation must be the, the explanation that accounts for more than less of the data. And it accounts, it, it answers more questions than its counterpart. Okay, it must have what is called explanatory uh, scope, explanatory breadth, breadth and explanatory depth. Right. And so I gave those so that we know the methodology. So definition misspell the misunderstanding, have methodology uh, that everybody agrees on, and then let's work from that. Because most people think, oh, religious belief is just some belief, like yeah. some state of mind, state of your psychology kind of thing. No, the belief in God can be reasonably affirmed and can be reasonably assessed, presenting evidence for the existence of God. That determines that God, that God is more likely to exist than not. Mm. In other words, theism is more likely true than atheism. So that's what we did last Sunday, just sort of a quick, quick, uh, short overview there. And we look at the first, uh, the first, uh, you know, reason I gave for the existence of God come from an old argument that was presented uh, by a medieval Muslim theologian called Al-Ghazali. And it has been revived by William Lane Craig. Um, it was a philosophy, very, very bright, brilliant philosophy. It's called the Kalam cosmological argument. It's very simple, deductive argument. Whatever begins to exist as a cause. Yeah. Now, we don't think things that begin to exist without cause for no reason. All right? This is one of the fundamental metaphysical truths. Whatever begins to exist does so due to something that caused it. And the universe began to exist. We have now uh, enough scientific evidence to know that the universe actually began to exist. And I did uh, mention, um, uh, you know, Alvin Bode, uh, Alan Guth, and Alexander Vilenkin's theorem. And so one is a physicist, the other one is a cosmologist, and the other one is a mathematician. Mm -hmm. And he, he is just quoting them. He says, any universe which has, on average, been expanding throughout its history cannot be infinite in the past, but must have a past space-time boundary. And here's another quote uh, by Alex Valenkin. Uh, he says, the, the, then the inevitable question arises, why did the universe... No, 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 no. Just, just bear with me. I was just misquoting there. Alex Valenkin says, all the evidence we have says that the universe had a beginning. Right, yeah. Now, these are cosmologists. I'm not talking about religious nuts somewhere no. in the back of the bush. Mm. They say all the evidence we have says that the universe had a beginning. Then that, that leads us to therefore. So whatever begins to exist is a, do, does so due to a cause. The universe began to exist. Therefore, the universe has got a cause. Now, so we've come to this point that the universe 
as a cause and what, what could be the cause of the universe. Okay, we analyze the universe, it's time, space, matter, and energy. So the cause of the universe must be timeless, spaceless, okay, uh, immaterial, and extremely powerful. Yes. And so timeless means eternal. <laughs> spaceless means omnip- only omnipresent everywhere, right? Mm. And then, you know, uh, immaterial means spirit. Mm. It's not matter. And, you know, you know, if the energy, the universe is energy, therefore the creator of the, could think about what kind of cause could cause this huge, powerful universe of ours if that cause is not more powerful than the universe itself. Yes. So, therefore, you've therefore he arrived to a classical definition of God, the omnipresent, mm. the spirit, the immaterial, extremely powerful creator, eternal creator of the world. So, that is your first line of argument uh, that uh, leads to the fact that we believe that God exists. Mm. Now, right now, we're going to look at the second line of evidence for the existence of God. And so, remember, this this line that I'm, I'm presenting, it's called the contingency argument. Now, I did explain the two terms, contingency and necessity. Last Sunday, I said contingency, or something is contingent when it is caused by something else. Mm. It 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 uh, the, its existence is an effect of some external cause. So something is necessary when it cannot not exist. You know, it exists necessarily. You cannot imagine it not existing. I gave example about numbers. Uh, that numbers uh, you know exist necessarily. Most mathematicians and philosophers think that number exists in that way, but the reality is that. Numbers don't stand uh, abstract objects, like numbers don't stand in don't stand in causal relations. Number two doesn't cause anything. Mm. Number seven doesn't have any causal power. So even if numbers were necessary, and God is necessary, only God could cause the the universe to come into being. So you have endless scientists who believe that the universe began to exist, and the creationists who read this Bible and says, in the beginning, God mm. created the universe come to the conclusion the universe began to exist, but the difference is that some of the cosmologists don't like the conclusion no. <laughs> that the universe was caused by God. So so the problem is not that the conclusion doesn't follow. It's just many people don't like the conclusion. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. All right, well, we're going to go and dive straight into that after this piece of music. There's a light for a look at the Savior And life more abundant and free Turn your eyes upon Jesus Look full in His wonderful face 
shall not fail you. He promised. Believe him, and all will be well. Then go to a world that is dying. His perfect salvation to tell. Samuel, so before the break, you gave a bit of an overview yes, of we what did. we've been discussing, what we yep. discussed last week about uh, yeah. the existence of God, yeah. and uh, and you're now launching into the, the reasons that uh, you are going to explain so to our is, listeners. I'm going to take the second line of thinking. So that first line is that God exists because of the beginning of the universe. Yeah. Okay? So that's one first line, through the Kalam Cosmological. Now, the second line of reasoning I'm going to, uh, reason I'm going to give uh, it's still part of the same family of arguments. Uh, it was defended by a a, um, a mathematician, Leibniz, uh, Gottfried Leibniz, uh, a, a a German um, uh, a cosmologist and mathematician. And it, it, it's it's this particular line of argument. Just bear with me because I want you to sort of think through it. Uh, it, it sort of opens someone's mind. I'd like to, to point out before I go, that the Christian religion is actually a thinking man's religion. Mm. Don't let no one tell you that people believe in God because they're dumb. Okay, If you start, the, this happens all the time when I start to get into it, people are like but why does it have to be hard? Well you don't want it to be childish, right? So you want it to, you want to think clearly and deeply about the things of God. So uh, here, here is uh, the, the first, uh, Leibniz started with, uh, with this, he says the first question and the most fundamental question that should be asked is why is there something rather than nothing? Mm. Because I mean, something is here. Why is there something? In other words, what's the explanation for the existence of this thing? 
Okay? So that's the most fundamental question that need to be asked. For example, we're here. The universe is here. You know, unless you know, there are people who believe, well, we're not here, we're just in a dream. <laughs> like we're in the matrix. <laughs> yeah, we're here, okay? We're here. Yeah. Uh, you know, and so the universe is here. So Leibniz started, I'm going to give you, you know, uh, it, it's still the principle of best explanation. And here are three statements. We're going to go through the three, and, and we're going to explain it as we go. Number one, anything that exists as an explanation for its, its existence. Right. Anything that exists. Has an explanation for its, yeah. for its existence, yes. Right. Anything that exists as an explanation for its existence. Yes. Yeah. That's premise one. Premise two. Premise two. If the universe exists, then the universe has an explanation for its existence. Mm. And since the universe exists, the explanation for the existence of the universe is God. Okay? Yep. And therefore, the explanation for the existence of the universe is God. Now, hold on to those four statements and let's start to, to look at one at a time. All right? Let's start uh, to look at one, one of statement at a time. Yep. The first fundamental is everything that exists as an explanation for its existence, either in the necessity of its nature or in an external cause. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. Everything that exists as an explanation, the explanation could be found in the necessity of the nature of the thing or in something else causing it. Remember, I talked about two types of existence. Necessary existence and contingency existence. Okay? So Leibniz is saying that anything that exists can't, ex- can't exist inexplicably. Here's how Richard Taylor, a philosopher, gives an example. Suppose you're walking in the bush with a friend or relative. You come across a huge ball sitting in in a bush. You start to wonder, how did it come to be there? What explains the presence and existence of the ball right there in the bush? Mm. And your friend says, oh, just forget it. It just is. That's a brute fact. Keep going. Of course you won't be satisfied. You want to know, did somebody put it here? Did he come from being thrown from distance miles away? How did he come through to be sitting here? It's just, it's reasonable to seek to know the explanation for the existence of something. Yes. So that principle there is metaphysically true. Everything that exists must be explained. And, and w- look at, look at, that, that, that there even drives everything else we do, including science. I'll get to that in a moment. Mm. So then he goes, if the universe exists, therefore the universe must have an explanation to its existence. Well, the reason for starting with a conditional is in case somebody thinks that the universe doesn't exist. And the third statement says, well, the universe, of course, exists. But the existence of the universe as an explanation in God. You're like, well, but hang on, Samuel, that's just a, a leap. So let's start from the, the way the atheists have looked at the first statement before I get to the third statement there. The atheists typically, from Bertrand Russell's and, you know, old-time atheists, their idea was, look, everything is an explanation. It's only things within the universe. By the time you get to the universe itself, it's just a brute fact. It just exists. Now, think about that for a moment. That is actually called, in in logic, a taxicab fallacy. (laughs) In other words, 
you use a principle for convenience until you get to your destination, then you dismiss your destination from applying the same principle. Mm. Notice, Leibniz didn't say everything has an explanation ex- except God. No. Leibniz say everything has an explanation for its existence. But God has an explanation in the fact that he exists necessarily. So, the, um, the, the, the atheist would be better off to say, well, the universe exists necessarily too, which is what they're trying to say. Mm. So, they can't object to us saying God exists necessarily if they're going to say the universe exists necessarily too. Alright? Mm. So, we just got two different starting points. Now we have to assess. What does it mean to exist necessarily? To exist necessarily means something for which you cannot imagine it not existing. But think about our universe. You could very easily, from the if you if you posit the Big Bang from the beginning of the, when the universe began, you can imagine a totally different universe of totally different creatures. It's like starting from your own existence, you know, or the existence of things that we see all around us. Things don't these things. It's it's counterintuitive to think that they exist necessarily. My existence is not necessary. Mm. You could imagine a world within which I wasn't there. You could imagine totally a totally different universe. So there is no reason to think that the universe exists necessarily. And so in that sense, the universe has an explanation, but the atheist is just not willing to go as far as to say, well, and so the idea that the universe exists and inexplicably is a fallacy. Mm. Okay? A fallacy is a misstep in thinking. So then... The, universe, uh, the, the atheists can go, all right, all right, we accept the universe as an explanation, but if it has an explanation, the explanation will be a state of affairs that is prior to the existence of the universe itself, which means a state of nothingness. But right? before the universe was, there was nothing. Well, let's think about that for a moment. What the atheists will be saying is, look, I think the universe is all there is. Therefore, before the universe was, there was nothing. Now, that too is a misstep in thinking. It's called reasoning in circle. Mm. You assume that which you want to prove. Okay? You assume there was nothing. How do you know there was nothing? We can look at the universe and, and analyze since the universe looks like it's not necessary and since the universe is contingent, the state of affair prior to the universe is God. Not nothing. Mm. Nothing has got no property. Nothing is, has got no causal power. So, unless you say the universe brought itself into being, which in itself is also fallacious. Yes, illogical. Exactly. So, you can see, the, let's start then the, the argument. So, you can see, uh, anything that exists is an explanation for its, exi- its existence, either in the necessity of its nature or in an external cause. If the universe exists, the universe has an explanation for its existence. And since the universe exists, the explanation for the existence of the universe is God. A state of affair prior to the universe, and that exists necessarily because the universe is contingent. Mm. And therefore, the explanation for the, the, the existence of the universe is God. Now, this is a very, very profound uh, contingency argument. Now, when I, when I get into the uh, analyzing uh, the argument for the existence of God, I know the lay person go, <gasps> it sort of go past their head. I understand. 
Why? Because many Christians have never taken time to think clearly and deeply about these things and all the work that has been done by theologians and, and, and philosophers to engage from a science, from philosophy, a philosophical point of view to explain the existence of God. So, this particular one uh, is a second line of argument in the class of what is called a contingency argument. The first one was the Kalam. The second one is this one here, the Leibniz contingency argument, which are is another piece of evidence that God exists. Mm. So remember, the first one is whatever begins to exist. Yep. This one is everything that exists as, a, as a, an explanation. So we're going by the best explanation. Since the universe exists, the best explanation for the existence of the universe must be found outside the universe itself. Yes. And that which can be found out of the universe itself is timeless. Mm-hmm. It's spaceless. It is immaterial and extremely powerful. All right. <laughs> so hold on to that thought. We're on a lovely journey of uh, getting to know the answer to the question, does God exist? I turn to the news To catch up on the world's problems Turn to the clock So I ain't late for that next dollar I turn to people For what they think of me To put a band-aid on my insecurities When I turn to you I don't have to know the answers have it all together I just bring my heart to you And I find rest I find strength and sweet forgiveness And peace just like I always do When I turn to you I turn Tell myself I'm good enough I turn my back A couple times on your love I've tried to do things on my own That never lasts too long Till I'm right back where I belong Then I turn to you don't have to know the answers We're having it all together I just bring my heart to you And I find rest I find strength and sweet forgiveness Peace just like I always do When I turn to you 
Okay, so we're back and we're still fleshing out the question about does God exist. So, Samuel, you, uh, you've gone through a couple of points. You've um, yes. put some thoughts into people's minds. Yes. Um, we're trying to simplify things as much as possible. Yes. Uh, this may not quite happen, um, but, uh, but you will um, br- break it all down as we go yeah. in- into some terminology that people can then use. I mean, obviously, we've got an argument here that has got a philosophical um, yes. conclusions, and yeah. it's not just the Bible told, yeah, the yeah, Bible yeah, says, yeah. Yeah. but but we can actually prove it in the things around us that yeah. there is the existence of God. And that's the entire process of natural theology, is the reflection of the theologian or the Christian philosopher, Christian thinker, on the created world. See, we look at the universe. It began to exist. Yeah. Well, if it began to exist, then it has a cause. And that's, that's just reflecting on God-created order. Or everything that exists has got an explanation. So the universe here must have an explanation. That's the Leibnizian uh, contingency argument we've just... Now, Leibniz is actually somebody's Godfrey Leibniz. It's somebody's name. Now, yeah. I, was, I was saying to uh, sort of to, to the audience online, so we, we're also on the, on the radio that... You know, if you want to read about these things, I recommend one book you can buy. You can get it on Kindle. You can get it in hard copy. You can get it in audio file if you want. It's called On Guard. Mm-hmm. On Guard, uh, you know, it's uh, written by William Lane Craig. Uh, fantastic book. Uh, you know, one thing you were talking about, simplifying simplifying things. You, you notice that uh, I have a, a bit of a, I know it's okay to simplify things. But if you simplify things until they become too simplistic, people won't believe in it. That's why people think they outgrew belief in God. Yes. And, and so many, many believers, especially in the church, we've tried to oversimplify things to the point where they become too simplistic. And people are not used to having their minds stretched. You know, there are things like in calculus that even if you wanted to teach the kindergartners or primary school or high schoolers, you, you've got to start building them up. So the reason for simplifying is you can build them up, they can get to the... Uh, you know, C.S. Lewis used to say Christianity is a thinking man religion. Yes. So my, my, my approach as, as, a, as a Christian teacher, uh, you know, is to elevate the level, the intellectual level of the people who are in our churches. Mm. You know, from the, you know, our ministers to uh, the lay preacher to, to the disciple who's sitting in the pews. We've got to elevate the level so think about it. our culture thinks that Christians are dumb. Yes, and, and it's quite. I was, I was when I was at uni. Um, I sat down with a friend who was an atheist, and and he asked me about the existence of God, and I started to explain these things. He said to me, "You cannot possibly be a Christian." <laughs> I'm, I'm like, "What do you mean?" Mm. 
He said, because you're not talking like Christians. I'm like, what do you mean? He's like, well, you're obviously a smart guy. What he implied was most of the Christians he met could not articulate why God exists. Yeah. Apart from their Bible said mm. so. Well, of course the Bible says so. I, I believe in the authority of the Bible. Don't get me wrong. Mm. But the man didn't believe in the authority of the Bible. He needed to be confronted with philosophy, science, and the observation of our natural world. Cosmology, physics, mathematics. I mean, the Bible even says that, that we can see God in the universe and Through we can see creation. God in the things around us. Yes. Exactly. Yeah. So that's what we've done so far. I've presented two lines of reasoning mm. to say why God exists. The beginning of the universe is the reason why God, we think God exists. And the fact that the universe itself exists at all mm. is a reason that God exists. Here's the third line of reasoning. God is the best explanation for why we have morality. I said it again. God is the best explanation for why there is morality at all. Yeah. Let me give you a deductive argument for it. If God did not exist, objective moral values and duties would not exist. Number two, but objective moral values and duties do exist. Mm. Therefore, God exists. This is the simplest form you can have of a moral argument that you can, anybody can remember this one. I can even put the first premise to become the second and the second the first. So let me start the first way I said it. If God did not exist, objective moral values and duties would not exist. But objective moral uh, values and duties do exist. Therefore, God exists. Okay? Now, I can turn around and say, start by, objective moral values and duties do exist. But if God didn't exist, Objective moral, value, objective moral values and duties would not exist. Therefore, God exists. So let me take the form that I've just enunciated now. Yeah. Let's start with objective moral values and duties exist. This is a statement that can be verified by our moral intuition. Mm. If you ask the question, let me start by what do I mean by objective? Objective means mind independent. There's a difference between subjective and objective. Subjective means it depends on me. Mm. Okay, something that depends on my mind. Objective is something that is outside of me, regardless of my preference or my wishes. So let me, for example, my taste. You know, you like vanilla ice cream, I like chocolate ice cream. That is a subjective statement. Mm. Because you liking vanilla, I'm like, I liking chocolate. It's just a matter of our taste. So that's subjective. Objective is like this microphone is right here. Yeah, It's not a, a, a statement of my liking or my test. The microphone is right there. It's objectively independent of me. Even if I said I don't believe in the microphone, it has no bearing on the existence of the microphone. It's right there objectively. Yeah, It's like we have an objective world around us. Trees exist. Mm. Birds, dogs, people. Mm. They, they're not a figment of my imagination. If they were a figment of my imagination, then they would be subjective. So we have an objective world out there, which we know. Now, let's talk about morality. When I say moral values and duties. Values are statements of worth. Think about it. When we say human beings have got intrinsic values, you shouldn't treat human beings like that. Or you shouldn't treat people like that. You see, by saying you should not, you are saying you have the duty to treat human beings differently than you're doing right now. But why shouldn't you treat them like that? Because you believe they are valuable. Their value is in themselves, not into what you think of them. 
All right? Yeah. So, by, by moral values, you mean the intrinsic worth of something. Mm. And by duty, I mean where you get the should. You have the obligation not to. It's like you're obligated to do this. So, I'll give you an example. Everybody, when you ask them, do morals, um, um, uh, is morality, uh, uh, you know, subjective or objective? So if I say, do you think right and wrong is real out there, or do you think it's just a matter of each person's opinion? You would be shocked that 75% of people in our culture today say that morality is depending on the person. It's up to you. The same person who says that says it until you come and steal their car. Yeah. They don't know what that means really, do they? Right. Mm. And if you say, well, in my own subjectivity, mm. in my liking, taking your car is fine. Yeah. And they're like, no, it's not fine. I'm like, well, your test, my test, who's to say? They go, no, 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 that's definitely wrong. Same, same people, if they're standing in a queue, you cut them ahead in the queue, they look at you and say, that's wrong, you shouldn't do that. I'm like, is that your wrong in your opinion or is it wrong in everybody's opinion is it wrong regardless of people's opinion right and so or you know if if would we you know conceive of taking the life of an innocent person somebody who's done nothing to you you just walk down the street with a gun just simply put on your bullet in somebody's head just like that is that ever right because the person who did it thought it was right and so it's like Kai Nielsen, who's a, an atheist, says, asking uh, whether um, you know murder is wrong is asking a self-answering question. What? Yeah. It's like asking a self-answering question. What do you mean murder is wrong? Murder is wrong, full stop. Uh, actually, it's Peter, Peter Cave. He's what? Whatever skeptical argument, uh, no, start with Kai Nielsen, is that to ask is murder evil is to ask a self-answering question. Hmm. Here's uh, Peter, Peter Cave. He's an atheist. He's not even a. He says, whatever skeptical argument may be brought against our belief that killing the innocent is morally wrong, we are more certain that killing is morally wrong than that argument is sound. Torturing an innocent child for the sheer fun of it is morally wrong, full stop. Hmm. Most people have got this moral intuition in them. Yes. Think about it. What do you feel if you saw somebody mistreating a dog? Like really torturing. A little puppy. Would you say, well, well, it's right for them? Would you? No. Or would you think that's really wrong and you'd be like, your own time, all intuition just be coming up, right? You know, we, we, we had this episode where some, uh, some animals were sent overseas and, and the way they were killed when you know, people were outraged. Mm. But if it was just a matter of your opinion, my opinion... Well, why, who are you to impose, impose your opinion on everybody? Because people tend to think that their moral sense is objectively right. Yeah. You know, you shouldn't treat people like that. You shouldn't be a bigot. Mm. Or you shouldn't be intolerant. Right? Mm. Was it in, in your opinion or in, a, in an objective sense that's wrong? So, you see what I mean? So, what I'm trying to say is objective morals and duties, do exist. we know them by our moral intuition. But what explains it? Where did this moral come from? Mm. That's what we're going to look at. Yeah, and we will look at that after the break. You call me out upon the waters 
So, Samuel, before the break, we were talking about uh, moral intuition. And yes. uh, and we were talking about, you know, where does morality come from? Yes. And, and, I mean, part of that thing is I think sometimes we in the West, we live in this little bubble, particularly in Australia, mm. where there's a not, a lot, not a lot of um, border conflicts necessarily mm. with other countries that have different opinions, different relig- mm. religions and different ways of doing things. So we think that our moral stance yeah. or our ideas of morality yeah. are all over the world, where, yeah. where they're not. You can walk into another culture and they will treat animals and people quite differently yeah. than, than we do. But we would have we would get our back up and say, well, this is wrong, that is wrong, that is wrong, um, because that's our opinion. Um, but they're doing something completely different on uh, within their own cultural setting. Yeah. And so we're, we're really looking at who then sets the moral standard that we should all be looking at and yeah. all be applying so that we're all on the same page when it comes to morality. Yeah, so the, the first thing that is a, a telltale sign is the person who believes that morality is just a matter of opinion mm. shouldn't have that strong opinion to say to somebody who of a different culture, that's wrong. Because if... So I'm going to go to the explanations. You brought something about cultural yeah. differences. So I'm going to get to that in a moment. But I wanted to sort of establish that point. So let's start by, okay, we, we have a moral intuition. We know that torturing a little child, a little toddler for the sheep fun of it, mm. is wrong, mm. right? Like I was, I was just reading, reading uh, you know, I, I quoted Peter Cave, who's a, a, an atheist. You know, he is another, you know, uh, Colin uh, McDean, uh, he's a professor of ethics um, at Oxford University. Uh, Colin, he's, it's a long statement, but bear with me, I'll, I'll read it. When I assert this is good and that is evil, I do not mean that I experience desire or aversion or that I have feelings of liking or indignation. These subjective experiences may be present, but the judgment points to a personal, points not to a personal or subjective state of mind, but to the presence of an objective value in a situation. What is implied in this objectivity? What is implied? Clearly, in the first place, it implies independence of the judging subject. If my assertion, this is good, is valid, then it is valid not for me only, but for everyone. If I say this is good, and another person referring to the same situation says this is not good, one or the other of us must be mistaken. Yeah. The validity of a moral judgment does not depend upon the person by whom the judgment is made. In saying the moral values belong to the nature of reality, the statement implies an objectivity which is independent of the achievement of the persons in informing their lives with these values and is even independent of their recognizing their validity. Whether we are guided by them or not, whether we acknowledge them or not, they have validity. Mm. Objective moral value is valid independent of my will and yet is something which satisfies my purpose and completes my nature. That is quite profound statement. Mm. So we then have to find out where does this strong moral sense come from? Now, when I was giving the example of, okay, I take the person's card, they can say, well, but look, it's against the law. What do they mean by it's against the law? They mean that the law determines what is right from what is wrong. That's yeah. what he's trying to say. Yeah. If you did something illegal, because generally whatever is illegal is immoral. But that statement is not sufficient. Why? Because we know instances where what is legal was actually immoral yeah. too. 
Yep, that's right. We would not have to go far. Mm. Remember segregation laws and slavery laws in America? Mm. Do you remember apartheid laws in South Africa? Mm-hmm. You know, do you remember you know, stolen generation in Australia? Yeah. We have had situations where laws were absolutely immoral and wrong. Mm. It is why we get moral reformers. Yes. If the law was always right, people like Martin Luther King, people like Mahatma Gandhi, people like Patrice Tamiru Lumumba, for example, in the Congo, uh, people like Kwame Krumah in, in, in Africa, uh, these people who fought for moral reformation would have been e- evil. Like, even those people who said, have you seen how many people who are fighting every day to try to change laws that they disagree with? Mm. You know, Barack Obama, you say, we have to do that because it's the right thing to do. Well, where do you get the right thing to do if this is already enshrined in the law? You're trying to change the law because changing the law was the right thing to do. Yeah. If the law was right, you wouldn't be saying changing it is the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. It would be the wrong evil thing to do to change it. Yeah. Because most people recognize there is a standard of morality above the law. Mm. Human law, our legal system. Yeah. Aristotle used to say... The law must be built on the f- necessary foundation of morality. Otherwise, it will be unjust and immoral. Mm. So, let's put the law aside. The law doesn't just justify the existence of moral values and duties. People might say, well, maybe it's just a matter of culture. You know, we, you know, we've got different cultures. Our laws reflect our culture, right? Look at what we're doing right now. You know, culture shifts. Then you pass laws to be in step with it. Okay, fine. But in the days of the slavery, the culture of the time was just fine with buying and selling slaves. Yes. So William Wilberforce was out of step with, the, with his culture. Mm. So if you've got to go with the culture at all times, why have we had a surge of people who were, you know, outsider, boundary pushers, you know, you know, sexual revolution of the 60s, you know, we don't want these, uh, these, these, these you know, boundaries put on us, yeah. restriction. We want to change it and shrine it in the law. Yeah. Well, you can't have it both ways. Either it is cult- culture determines morality, and if you're in a culture that determines that's right, you just do what the culture says, right? Mm. You don't start to push to change the culture if the culture is always right. Here's another way of looking at it. Say you're an Australian, okay? If it's a matter of cultural relativity, cultural relativism. So if somebody from, let's say, Congo, come to Australia and and they, they've got their own culture day. Just as a matter of an example, if they are cannibals in a bush somewhere, the pygmies, and they come to Australia, like, well, each person is you must live to their culture. And so the the man who's a, who's a cannibal want to start eating, you know, even if it was just eating their own kid, uh, here, as an example, yeah. would we go, no, 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 that's not okay. Well, we can say it's against our law. See, we've gone back to the law is always right. Yeah. Or you can say it's against our culture, but he's going to say, but I'm not from your culture. Yes. Well, you might say, well, you in Australia, you do as the Australians do. Fine. What if an Australian then went to the pygmies? Mm. And the pygmies turn around, you're an Australian, but you're in the pygmies culture. You eat what the pygmies eat. And so they present it to you, human f- flesh. Would you eat it? Mm-hmm. No, no, I can't do that. It's wrong. Or have you noticed that you're saying that your Australian culture is right in Australia and right in other people's culture too? Mm. But you wouldn't have given that pygmy or that person from whatever culture that is cannibalistic, just as, just as an example, yeah. you wouldn't have given them the same courtesy. If they were in Australia, you could have said, well, look, um, whatever is right in the culture, let them do it here. Why? Because unless now you are basically being a bigot who thinks that you've got some cultural superiority, mm-hmm. it's the reason is because you're a bigot. 
Well, we say we say we're civilized, don't we? In that, if you were going to use that as an example, yeah. um, people say that we're civilized, so we don't yeah. eat each other anymore. But what does that mean, civilized? Uh, it means we've we've had whatever it. people think it means. Yeah, exactly. Mm. So when you say we've civilized, it means we have advanced. But you can't yeah. advance unless there's a point to advance to what? Exactly, exactly. Yeah, w- which point are you advancing to? And so it's like C.S. Lewis say, a man does not know that the line is crooked unless he's got an idea of a straight line. Mm. If there is no objective standard point, so up and down, sideways, you can't figure out which one is which. So everybody should just do whatever their culture requires. And so, so in order what I'm saying, the culture doesn't cut it, does it? No, it doesn't. Particularly if you live in a multicultural society. It'd exactly. be absolute mayhem. Oh, I've, you know what? It always <laughs> makes me laugh. Yeah. You know, we live in a multicultural society mm. until certain things that could be done in other cultures uh, are ex- strongly opposed to the Aussie culture. Then we go, go, well, not that. Even the, mul- the most multiculturalist person would not let certain things that happen in other cultures happen here. Yeah, that's true. I'll give you an example. There's a, a, cult- a, a section in a, in a part of the Congo that I'm from. Uh, the government has banned that now. It used to be in the past. When I was growing up, it used to be that way in the 70s. Where if a young man wants to get married... He just got to go and find a, a, a beautiful girl from the next village. And he doesn't have to go and court her and ask her what she wants. No, he's just going to wait for when she goes to get water at the well in the bush. Him and his mate are just going to go and jump on her and, and, and then give the, him the chance to basically violate her integrity. And then they'll go make a, a, a catch cry, uh, which means he's found himself a wife. Nobody asked her whether she wanted that guy or not. Mm. All the elders will come singing, there goes marriage. Wow. Okay. C- can you see that? Yeah. Tell me that that practice is not wrong. Tell mm. me that it is not wrong because it's their culture. Yeah. And so if they came to Australia and start doing it, would you let them? Yeah. So culture doesn't cut it. No, it does well, not. So let's move on very quickly. Oh, well, maybe we evolved to no morality. We evolved. <laughs> we are fine. How do you jump from the, you know, the monkey morality to the human morality? Mm-hmm. How do you go from the lion morality to the human morality? When a, when a, a lion, you know, a young male lion decides that, you know, his father is too old. He must be kicked and sent into exile to die lonely yeah. so that he can inherit his sisters and, and the pride. Nobody says, well, that's wrong. Mr. Lion, look, what you've done is you've beat, you've, they go for a fight yep. and the, 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 the old male is kicked out yeah. and he's going to go out probably in hyena's territory and he's going to be basically torn into pieces, left there to die of hunger, okay? Because he's old, he can't hunt anymore. Mm. The lions do that all the time. Mm. Should we do that with our elders? You okay? Well, mm. well, evolution, right? Well, if it's good for the animals, it must be good for us. Survival of the Survival fittest. Survival of the fittest, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, obviously, somebody who believes that it's evolutionary must show at which point did we leap. When a, a great white shark co- forcibly copulate a female, we don't call it rape. No. So, wait, 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 have you seen what the bonobos did? The bonobos are our closest relative, they say. We have the bonobos in the Congo. You should see how they live. Should we go and live like the bonobos, should we? I don't know how they live, so... Well, exactly the same thing. Mm. It's like, you know, it's, there's no courtship and stuff. Oh, the, okay. the biggest male catches all the females around town. And, and anyone else who's weak can't say a word to be beaten up. Do you reckon, should I walk around and flex my muscles and get every beautiful female I can get? Because, well, monkeys and us, we're not that far apart. Mm. Well, no, we know that would be wrong. And he doesn't ask permission to those females. He just jumps. Mm. So what I'm trying to say is evolution is not a good explanation for morality. No. And now we've left only with one explanation that 
Everybody does want to hear. If God didn't exist, objective moral values would not exist. That would absolutely not exist. Well, this is a great subject and uh, there's more to uh, to talk about and we will uh, finish that discussion. Well, maybe, we don't know, we might continue on, but we'll at least uh, have another week or so on this discussion on whether or not God does exist. Hope you're enjoying the show and, uh, and we'll catch you up all um, next week uh, when we talk about does God exist. Thank you, Samuel, for uh, your enlightening... <laughs> talk about all of this sort of stuff. And if you've got any questions, please flick them to us. Um, you can go to the original, uh, a Reasonable Christianity's website and uh, and you can put your questions Facebook there. Facebook page. Oh, Facebook yes, page. Yes, yes. Yep, that's right. And, uh, and do it there. Let's finish up there and uh, we'll catch you all next week.